0: This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. When I went to the drug unit, to drug suppression unit, that's probably the job that sent me to the hospital the most. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, and the righteous serves bold as a lion.
1: Welcome to Diaconas, a cop's calling. I'm your host, Anthony Weaver, and on this episode, I'll have the second part of my conversation with retired Chief Jared Berkey Heiser. Uh, but before I wanted to get before we get into that, I kind of wanted to touch on a current event. Well, not kind of I do want to touch on a uh, current event that I just recently read about. One of the goals of the podcast is to uh, just bring a certain level of uh, context and um, just law enforcement thinking to some things that uh, we read in the newspaper, we hear on the news, the videos we watch. Uh, where conclusions are drawn and, and there's this idea that the police acted in a wrong way. And in some of those incidents, the police have acted in a wrong way and should be held accountable. But recently, I just read a case that came out of um, Oklahoma City. Uh, so just to break that down for you, recently, five Oklahoma City police officers were charged with first-degree manslaughter. And that uh, rose out of an event that happened back on November 23rd there in the city. It was a robbery in progress call where a 15 year old suspect uh, went into a gas station to rob it and was armed with a handgun. So the, the clerk in that incident was able to escape the store and lock the doors behind him as he went. I'm not exactly sure how he was able to do that, but when the police arrived, the suspect was trapped inside the store. The clerk was outside the store. Um, Based on the videos and the articles I read, it it doesn't sound like anyone else was inside the store. It was just the suspect trapped in the store, armed with a gun, that sort of thing. So the police are there, you hear them um, discussing how they're going to resolve the situation how are they going to make contact with the suspect uh, can they call him on the phone that's in the store uh, and obviously there was there was plans being developed on the scene about how how they were going to resolve this situation and as a as a past police officer watching these videos I can critique all day long tactics used and how things could have been done different um, you know every single video I've, I've ever watched involving law enforcement officers and a use of force incident, you can, you can pick out things that could have been done better or differently in this video or multiple videos. I've, I've watched multiple videos from different angles of this. You can, you can do that. Even my own videos, uh, of myself doing the job at times where I was using force would go back and be like, well, I wish I would have done that differently. I could have done that differently. I definitely messed that up. You know, tactically speaking, there were always things you could improve on and do better. Regardless, the officers are trying to develop a plan on how to get the suspect out of the store and do it in a way where, where no one gets hurt. And there's conversations to that effect, but without warning, the suspect exits the store through a window uh, on the side of the store. Um, he exits with the gun and uh, gets, gets down onto the sidewalk outside the store. At that point, you hear officers giving uh, multiple commands to him. Those commands include show us your hands, uh, get on the ground. At one point, you hear an officer almost like begging him in a certain way, like, don't do that uh no one officer yells no another uh mutters please don't do that and right after those those last three commands are heard like don't do that no please don't do that uh the officer's open fire and kill the 15-year-old suspect now what is happening during those commands is the suspect actually lifts up the front of his shirt um pulls pulls the gun out uh with tips of his fingers and throws the gun on the ground and then the officers continue to give him commands to get on the ground, uh, keep his hands visible, those sorts of things. And he reaches back behind his back towards his, one of his rear pockets. And at that point is when you start hearing officers say stuff like, no, don't do that, please don't do that, those types of things. And then uh, immediately after that, uh, they open fire on the 15 year old, and then they kill uh, the 15 year old suspect. So, The district attorney in Oklahoma City decided to charge these five officers with uh, first degree manslaughter. I went into Oklahoma um, law and looked up manslaughter and what first degree manslaughter is. I'm assuming, I haven't seen the actual charges, but I'm assuming they're charging these officers with the section that says um, they can be charged with first degree manslaughter when. The homicide is perpetrated without a design to affect death and in a heat of passion, but in a cruel and unusual manner or by a means of a dangerous weapon, unless it is committed under such circumstances as constitute excusable or justifiable homicide. Watching the videos, again, I watched multiple videos, multiple angles. Um, I don't believe the officers should have been charged with manslaughter in this case. Um, And I'm going to kind of break down why that is. And just try to help, Um, I think it also helps when I have these conversations with people to understand exactly what's going through officers' minds in a situation like that. So the first thing I'd like to point out is that this was a felony in progress with an armed suspect. So when the officers arrive, they're already at um, lethal force level. Uh, As they arrive, they're already at lethal force level because they are interrupting a robbery in progress that's being committed with a handgun. The other thing I'd like to point out is the officers surround the store. They're working on a plan to try to resolve the situation. Um, They're not just shooting blindly into the store. They're not, you know, talking about, you know, running a cruiser through the front doors and just laying into this guy. They're trying to figure out how to make contact with him and speak with him and, and resolve it and get him to surrender. Um, again, pointing to a uh, against any any type of criminal charge against them. While they're developing this plan, the suspect decides to come out through a window. So, a couple things I want to point out about this: the suspect never came to the front doors, which, when I watch the videos, appear to be glass covered. It never came to the front doors. Put his hands up. Um, you know, showed his waistband anything like that. Instead, he decided to come out a window without warning. Not only did he decide to come out a window without warning, he came out with the handgun. So he decided, I'm not going to leave the handgun in the store. I'm going to take it out with me. So the question has to be asked, why did he do that? Was, you know, why did he think that would be his best option? Was his hope that he would be able to get out the window and escape and he wanted to keep the gun with him what was his point of doing that we won't know unfortunately uh because tragically he died but once he gets out and realizes hey i can't go anywhere this is kind of end of the road he does pull that gun out lay it on the ground and i will say this the officers showed a great deal of restraint actually not shooting him at that time uh, because once he lifted his waistband and showed the gun and then reached for it, I don't care how you're reaching for it, uh, make a movement towards that gun, the officers would have been justified in that moment um, stopping that threat and, and shooting at him. They didn't. They showed restraint. He he puts the gun down. But the officers don't have the ability to see in the future, so they don't know Does he have another weapon on him? And I will tell you that there have been, I've been involved in arrests and I know of arrests uh, even in Lancaster City when I was a police officer where we came across suspects who had multiple guns on them. So it's not uncommon or it's not outlandish or it's not uh, weird or uh, crazy to think that If he has one gun, he's probably going to have a second. There's there's nothing outside the realm of possibility with believing that that does happen uh, on occasion. And so these officers taking due caution, you know, believe, hey, he he had one gun. Not only did he have one gun, he decided to come out of the store with that gun. And we have to believe um, we don't have the luxury of not believing that he doesn't have a second gun on him. And so when he reaches back towards his, um, towards his back where they can't see, uh, I guarantee you those officers on the scene were believing he was reaching for a gun uh, based on all those things I laid out. Like, why wouldn't he just surrender inside the store? Why wouldn't he leave a gun inside the store? Like, why did he decide to come out a window? What, you know, why did he not get on the ground when we told him to get on the ground? Why did he uh, reach for, for the back of his waistband, his back pocket? And had I been an officer in that situation, I'll tell you right now, I would have believed he was reaching for a gun based on all those circumstances. And unfortunately, the officers do not have the luxury of being able to see in the future and see, okay, he wasn't reaching for a gun. What he actually ended up reaching for, there was a cell phone in his, in his rear pocket that um, it appears he was maybe reaching for. Why, we don't know. The question isn't, you know, why was, you know, why did the officer shoot him? It's like, why wasn't the suspect following directions that he was being given? Um, So the context to it uh, just needs to be brought because now these officers are facing uh, manslaughter charges. Uh, I I believe it's going to be hard for uh, the district attorney in Oklahoma City to get a conviction for it based on the section that I just read you, based on watching all the video that I watched of it, based on reading the articles about it, it sounds like one of the main reasons they're bringing the first-degree manslaughter is they're saying that the officers um, gave differing commands. And when you watch the video, you can hear officers giving different commands at, at some points. You also hear, I'm assuming it's a supervisor or, or a, uh, a senior officer on the scene trying to get only one person to give command so that there's no confusion there. But even if officers are giving multiple commands, um, I don't know how you're going to be able to prove that that was cruel and unusual. It was heat of the moment. It was, um, you know, just the fog of adrenaline and, and believing that they were, um, in imminent uh, danger of serious bodily injury and death. Um, and multiple officers give commands, the question remains why didn't the suspect just get on the ground why didn't he surrender in the store? why did he take the actions he took and I think it's you know you have to bring into this narrative that the the press pushes at times and that we see on the news the the responsibility in this in this incident lies with the suspect. the officers are there because they were called there for an armed robbery, and the suspect made decisions. That he made it's a it's a tragedy that a fifteen year old lost his lost his life, but it's also a tragedy that a fifteen year old was committing an armed robbery against a hardworking individual, and the officers there. It's a tragedy for them because you can tell when you listen to the video that none of them went there wanting to kill anybody or hurt anybody, um, but when they believed that their lives were in danger, uh, and that there was an imminent threat there. They they used deadly force to stop that threat, and unfortunately, the 15 year old lost his life. So I just kind of wanted to bring some context there, and just to add a little more context to that. I I will I will share with you there was um, an incident I was involved in in the city. I was very new on the job, probably um, two three years on the job. A uh, early one morning, Turkey Hill clerk calls the police. Um, if I remember correctly, reports some sort of guys that were trespassing around the store. Obviously, the clerk was worried that, you know, he was going to be held up at, you know, and robbed um, as he went into work um, and maybe taken in the store and and the store robbed. So I think that was kind of the nature of the call. But anyways, I start looking for these two uh, suspects. I come across them um, on Queen Street uh, there in the city, and uh, I, I approach them and I give commands to them to stop. And the one suspect, uh, there's no way for me to describe it other than he took a super aggressive position. Instead of stopping, he bladed his body to me and reached for his waistband pocket area on the side of his body that he had bladed away from me. So all indications to me was that he was armed and retrieving a gun. And I didn't know why. Um, I was just stopping them to investigate a trespassing, suspicious activity, but when he got hunched down, uh, uh, twirled away from me, bladed his body, and reached for his waistband, I drew my gun, and in my mind, I believed I was going to be in a fight for my life uh, within, like, a millisecond, and um, I was getting ready to, to lay into this guy, and he dropped um, what he had in his hand. And it was a crack pipe. It was a glass crack pipe. I heard it hit the ground and, um, break. So I just share that story because it brings context to what these officers, um, are going through what even now, as I speak, officers are making these split second decisions. And in that incident that I just described to you that happened to me, I believed in that moment, absolutely a. Uh, a gun was being retrieved. A weapon was being retrieved against me. Um, and and I was getting ready to engage that threat with lethal force. Um, and just a millisecond it took for me to make those decisions, he dropped a crack pipe on the ground. And I almost shot a guy over um, him retrieving a crack pipe. So when I see these videos, I have been in situations like that I've lived them. I know officers who have lived them and been in them. And and I desire to bring a level of context and understanding to what you're really seeing because on the news, it'll they'll just throw up a 30-second clip. You'll watch it. You'll be like, man, those cops are idiots. Why did they do that? They should have never shot him. He's only 15. He put his gun down. Like, why did they do this? And so I want to be able to offer some context to that because I think historically, us in law enforcement, we've done a poor job in doing that in helping people understand what is going through the minds of officers who are engaging in that type of um, interaction. And so I hope just me kind of breaking it down and explaining it kind of helps you uh, or helps people understand um, a little bit of, of what is going on in officers' heads when they're, in, when they're involved in a situation like that. Um, it's not cut and dry. It's not black and white. Uh, it's a lot of gray. And unfortunately, the officers don't have the luxury, like I said before, of seeing the future, knowing what the suspect is doing. They're in the here and now uh, making split-second decisions about things that could uh, cause them to be gravely injured or, or hurt um, or killed uh, or have one of their uh, partners, other officers, hurt, injured, or killed or have bystanders hurt, injured, and killed. Because the clerk was also still on the scene there. He was still talking to police officers, it looks like, in the video when this guy came out. So you have a civilian there, too, that you're also trying to protect. So just wanted to bring some context to that, something I just saw recently that I was like, you know what, I just, you know, I'm going to break this down. It just happened. These officers just got charged. Um, It's a tragedy that a 15-year-old lost his life. um, But it's also a tragedy that these officers were... um, uh charged with manslaughter because i don't believe they should have been uh their careers are ruined uh they're financially probably ruined um and it's and it's sad because they went to a call to try to help a clerk who was being robbed they made split second decisions that i believe were justified um not not perfect uh nothing a police officer ever does is perfect um just like nothing anyone does is ever perfect uh, on this side of heaven. So just wanted to, uh, share that with you. And listen, if if you're a person of faith, pray for our police officers. Even like I said, right now, some of them are making decisions, split second decisions right now, uh, with, with heavy and weighty stuff, uh, like what just happened in Oklahoma city back in November. All right, I'll get off my soapbox and, uh, We'll get to the second part of my uh, two-part interview with retired Chief Jared Berkeyheiser. If you didn't listen to the first part, that was last last Tuesday, uh, you can listen to it. Um, and in there, there's a bio, but Chief Berkeyheiser worked for over 30 years uh, in law enforcement. And he retired as the chief of the Lancaster City Bureau of Police. Uh, he has a long, decorated career. So let's get after it. I'm going to jump into the second part of my conversation with retired Chief Jared Berkeiser.
0: And you know, I recognize that you know that's not a great road to go down. Um, and I was just getting very, um, just cynical.
1: Do you think? Do you think it had to do in your career in the moments where you found yourself getting like that? Um, do you think it just had to do with? Just needing a change, or do you think it had to do with other things?
0: Um, I think, yeah, I I think it had to do with, uh, you know, probably residual effects from post traumatic stress. Um, And then I think it had to do with the company I was keeping um, at work. Uh, Because, you know, some of those guys could just get really negative. Right. You know, and negativity breeds negativity. Um, and, you know, and I just think that, that was, that had a lot to do with it. Um, and, you know, and some of it was the job, you know, I was investigating, I was in violent crime at the time and I was investigating shooting after shooting after shooting and you didn't have a victim because the victims didn't want to be cooperative, you know, and good, bad or indifferent, you know, the, the running joke we had is the only willing victim we had in a shooting was a dead one. Right. Um, and, you know, because
1: unfortunately a lot of the shootings that, a police department investigates the victim party in it is engaged in criminal, criminal activity, activity themselves.
0: Yep. Not all the time, but right the majority of the time. Yeah. I, you know, and you know, back then too, they had Millersville do a study on our homicides and you know, well over 95% of our homicides had a drug nexus to it. So that's, you know, that, that was part of it. So it just got frustrating. You did a lot of this investigative work and you could never charge anybody uh, with it. So, Um, You know, I I looked at the fact that, you know, maybe I needed a change, um, something to maybe reinvigorate my career. And at that point in time, I had a lot of experience that I could impart on other people. Right. Um, So that's when I decided to to test for a sergeant and got promoted. Uh, Went back to the street for a while. Really enjoyed that. Um, You know, one of the things I wanted to do uh shortly after I got to a shift was just show them that you know I'm not I'm not just going to be a boss um and you know I was able to do that in pretty short order with making a uh an arrest a firearms arrest um five people in a car four guns um and it was a shots fired and I took all the charges you know the only thing I asked them to help me with was you know an interview here or there to solidify the right. charges, but I I did most of the work on it and you know showing as a sergeant showing a patrol officer that you're willing to get your hands dirty and and do the work and take charges. I mean that goes a long way. Yeah, um, it it
1: it it does. It goes a very long way because
0: I knew what it felt like when I had a patrol sergeant call me over to a corner to write a tr- uh, a parking ticket for a car parked in front of a fi- uh, fire hydrant. Right or you know i had one sergeant who was great at finding duis but he didn't want to do the paperwork he didn't want to do the paperwork right um so which is just garbage yeah and and back then i hated doing duis cuz the paperwork was so you know uh it was just intensive and it took you off the street for a considerable amount of time uh and i i wanted to stay on the street so especially back then in the 90s yeah,
1: what what was it like in the '90s when you came came on? Because the crack epidemic was kind of in full swing in the yep. '90s. I kind of I came in on the department in uh, 2000, so I was at the very. I didn't see. It to the same extent as you guys did that got
0: hired in the '90s. The way it felt for us, or you know, the way I remember it, it almost seemed like there wasn't there were, there was not a corner in the southeast that didn't have an open air drug market on it. I mean, that's that's kind of how it felt. Uh, especially, you know, bordered by bordered by, you know, from Rockland Street over to uh probably South Marshall or even South Franklin Street. Um almost every corner had you could find a drug dealer. Right. Um that's one of the reasons why I liked making other felony arrests because you could go out and in five minutes make a felony drug arrest. Um I'd rather get guns and other stuff off the street. But uh we were running And back then, too, because we were covering Lancaster Township, uh, and we had maybe, I think, 114-ish or 120 officers. There were times where we were covering the city with uh, one two-man car in the southeast, one two-man car in the southwest, and then two one-man cars in the northeast-northwest. And if you were lucky, you had a center car. Um, And then Lancaster Township, the cars in Lancaster Township. And uh, we were running shootings all the time. Right. Uh, Non-fatals, and I I think my first year on the job, they finished the year with 12 or 14 homicides. So for a city our size and a department our size, that's pretty intense. Uh, And
1: I think the last several years in the city, it's been around six, seven.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's just, uh, you know, like the 100 block of Green Street, it's one of the stories I did with, uh, when I rode around with Jen Foster. You know, the 100 block of Green Street, there might have been one or two homes that were occupied in that entire block. Everything else was boarded up. And right there at Green and Palm, we had a number of shootings and homicides um, in that intersection. Right. Um, Just warring uh, either groups from New York fighting with uh, Lancaster groups or, you know, whatever. Um, It was it was pretty crazy. Yeah,
1: I kind of came in on the tail end of that. I mean, I still remember uh, that the the one intersection, uh, uh, Persian and Howard, we called the dome, yep, uh, you kind of came in from every direction and yeah and the dealers would run and you know yeah.
0: drop dope and guns and stuff, and yep. we used so, to we used to play a game on in the five hundred block of Green Street, and uh, we'd have uh, guys on foot in White Alley and then have a car. Buck traffic down the 500 block of Green Street, and whoever ran got snatched in right. in wide Alley. So you know it was, yeah. you know, I mean, it was it was fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I look back and at some of the stuff I did, uh, and you know, I'm amazed that I'm still alive. Uh, which kind of tells me God was probably looking out for me. Right. You know, I always, I actually always wore a Saint Michael, um, pendant. And, uh, when I was on the job and, uh, you know, cause I, I did some crazy stuff, yeah, you know, and of course too, in your twenties, you think you're invincible. Um, but, uh, like, you know, I spent, when I went to the drug unit to drug suppression unit, that's probably the job that sent me to the hospital the most. Um, just because it was just crazy. And the things you did were, were crazy, you know, like who, like Jimmy Mumaw and I uh, were pretty good partners. We'd go out and ride around together. And, you know, like one, late one morning, we're driving down the 100 block of Locust Street. And we're, we're in an unmarked blue Chevy Caprice that has a metal disc on the dashboard where you could throw a magnetic light um, sitting between us on the seat was the actual red and blue flashing light, you know, to throw on the dash. The police radio was clearly visible. And every time we roll up to a drug corner, when him and I were out checking corners, he'd do the, yo, you got two? Give me two. So we're rolling down the 100 block of Locust Street. And he does this to a guy. And the guy's like, what? He's like, yo, you got two. He's like, yeah, go over there. So he tells us to park in the parking lot. Now were you guys in plain clothes? Or were you yeah, in- we were in plain okay. clothes. Yeah. Cause back then in Drug Suppression, unit, you 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 know, the the uniform of the day used to be camouflage pants and, you know, like a sweatshirt. Right. And uh I was always one not everybody wore body armor when they went out like that. I always did. Cause that, that was a promise I made to my family. Um now I violated that promise a couple of times when I was in detectives, but um because it's hard to put body armor over a suit. Right. Uh, but, you know, so we parked in the church parking lot at uh, the Pershing and Shippen and uh, Pershing and Howard, or Pershing and Locust. And uh, and we're sitting there, and sure enough, here he comes. And he's got his uh, fist clenched, like he's carrying crack in his hand. So we get out of the car, and moomal has got his radio in his cargo pocket and he's go, yo, he looks at it and points at the radio and he's like, yo, you you guys cops are like, no, no, that's just a scanner. So we know where the cops are at. And we're like, you know, you're going to show us, you gonna show us, show us what you got. And he opens his hand and shows us the crack. And then it was, you know, pile on the rabbit. We just jumped him. Um, and like, we're like, that should have never happened. Like we must've got the dumbest criminal drug dealer ever. And then when we get him back to the station, we find out he's 17, but he's certified an adult. He actually served five years in in prison, or three out of a five year sentence in prison for a shooting. Um, so, yeah, and you know, and then him and I are out again, and you know, one of the hot corners was uh, Green and Rockland, and there used to be a Chinese, you know, takeout restaurant there, Lucky's. Yep. And it was also a hangout spot. So we roll up and we can smell weed. They're smoking weed. So it's just him and I, two of us. We get out on four guys who are uh, 5'11", 6'2". And they're all bigger than we are. And we're like, okay, who's got the weed? And, you know, one guy takes off running. So I figure he probably had the gun. And then we start fighting with the other three. So it's two against three. Um, the other two take off running. Mumal chases his guy, and I'm still fighting with my guy. And I'm wearing a rig, a holster, that I thought was cool at the time. Uh, it, it had absolutely no security to keep the gun in the holster. So my sergeant at the time, Joe McGuire, always had, like, the most expensive stuff. And this was, like, a Don Hume leather holster, you know, And, you know, leather belt with Velcro and all, you know, it, it looked cool. wasn't practical for, you know, jumping out on people. And this guy's grabbing my gun and I can feel it coming out of the holster. And, you know, I'm doing everything I can to keep it in the holster. And then he takes off running and I chase him and I catch him. Um, But probably separated my shoulder a little bit or dislocated it and never got it checked. Um, And, uh, but, you know, almost cut my nose off hitting a door the glass shattered in the door and came down came. On my, when I hit it with the Ram and almost cut my nose off. So yeah, just, just the dumb stuff. Crazy. You do crazy. And yeah.
1: I remember, I remember doing a, uh, my very first undercover drug deal was just one night. We're working overtime. Uh, we call them SOGs, the street operations group. And so me and another officer working overtime, they decided to just put us out in plain clothes to just go down into that into the dome as we called it and just just see if you can buy some crack we never and we
0: call it the dome because it was like the thunder dome yeah
1: we we had never like you know me and this officer we had never purchased drugs before we had no idea what we were doing so we go down there we pull up uh we ask, you know we ask for two or whatever a or 20 piece or whatever and uh a dealer sells sells me crack i have my radio underneath the seat of the car uh, I have my gun on um i i'm I probably wasn't wearing a vest i don 't remember, and uh we buy this crack and we we pull away. I pull my radio out from underneath the car seat, and I realized that I was so excited about buying crack. I never even looked at what this guy was wearing <laughs> description, nothing, so we're like looking in the rear view mirror and side view mirrors trying to get a description for our arrest team to come in, which it worked out. We got him under arrest, but yeah, just stuff like that, you look back now and you know, being the sergeant of SEU, right? Uh, at the end of my career, uh, there's no way right. my guys would have been doing anything. Oh yeah, like that. I mean,
0: you know, thankfully, you know, and that's we talked about it earlier. I mean, that's one of, that's one of the reasons why you would read articles, you know, on Police One or Officer dot com, and because uh, you don't want to be a statistic, you don't want to make the same mistakes other people did. You know, I can remember uh, going out with NYPD detectives because. You know they they had undercover shot and killed, um, and the bad guy was supposed to be in Lancaster. And you know when you hear the circumstances of how that happened, you know you never wanted that to be one of us. And right. you know and and their undercovers are really undercover. Like most people don't know them, uh, even even on the job they don't really know. Them. My understanding is they don't even get paid on city payroll, um, so their information doesn't get leaked out. Right. Um, but you know it's. Yeah, it's some of the just the crazy stuff. It's, right, you know, I've always thought I should have wrote some of this stuff down uh, to be able to write a book about it. Um, just some, and some of the stupid calls that you go on, you yeah. know, I I can remember my shift going to the same apartment twice for a loud noise and. It was a vacuum cleaner at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the vacuum cleaner hose went up under the covers of the person that was laying in bed. Uh, <laughs> and the individual was obviously using the vacuum cleaner for some kind of pleasure, and not only did it once, but did it more than once to, you know, cause a police response.
1: See, these you know? are these are the types of things, that, and you're going in and you're thinking you're going to solve a noise complaint
0: problem, and then you're faced right. with this, and, yeah. and then and it just turns into... And you got to keep a straight face when right. you, when you're talking to the person. Right. You know. I mean. You know. There. I mean. We had some funny stuff. I mean. You know. There. I can remember. You know. One of the best supervisors I worked for was Oscar Lucret. Um, you know. I. I had the advantage of having a number of good supervisors, but one of the best. I think was Oscar, um, and I think you know, he was a he was a calming voice when everything else was going sideways. And I can remember I was, sh- I was at a training um, and my, I was actually partnered with my uh, first FTO and we responded to a domestic uh, that an off- uh, another officer was already on scene. And we get there as a hundred block East chestnut. And uh, this one guy drunk as drunk could be, um, punched this other guy in the face because he thought, this other guy was, you know, making out or, you know, cheating on him with his girlfriend. And it just so happened they were they were coworkers for the same taxi cab company and they were just sitting there talking and he came home drunk and assumed the worst and punched this guy. So I'm trying to get his information and his girlfriend's information and I start hearing my partner yelling from the other room and I go in there and he's got the other officer who's kind of small statured. He's got him by the throat against the wall She's trying to swing on him, and you know the the punches aren't having any effect and So I started you know wailing on him a little bit, and then decided, oh, we'll use pepper spray and the pepper spray worked, but it worked for the entire apartment building um because we had to bring the fire department out and uh and um yeah, do whatever they do with their fans. I can't remember, think of the name right now, but uh you know they they got rid of the pepper spray But we had the bad guy sitting on the curb And I'm standing there And I'm I'm pissed I'm angry because you know, He just had one of our officers by the throat Against the wall He was swinging at, at my partner And I was just waiting for him to Do something stupid And I was going to be all over him Handcuffed and all I was going to be all over him And Oscar Lucrette walks over And he read the situation That it was pretty tense And that wasn't going to end well and he's like looks at the guy sitting at the curb the guy we arrested and he's like yo man you look like you'd use a skittle you want a skittle and he pulls out a handful of skittles and shows them to the guy <laughs> and he's like what no all right then and he puts it back in his pocket and walks away and i just lost it like i just started laughing uncontrollably like he he completely broke the tension uh and probably saved me from getting into trouble right um you know, cause, you know I good bit be- whether it's good or not i was looking for a little bit of street justice cuz he just had one of our officers by the throat right and was punching my partner yeah it's really hard in those
1: situations to uh take a step back and take a breath yeah
0: especially when you're young you, you know yep you have not a whole lot of experience as a cop and you know and i had another sergeant kind of save my career in that in that regard too you know i had a, a an arrest i brought in to the slating counter and uh I arrested him for public drunk, and he's mouthing off at me. And he starts saying about, you know, different awful things that he's going to do to my wife and kids. And a lot of people know that, uh, to me, my family is everything. So threatening my family was not going to go over well. Um, You know, so I picked this guy up with my forearm against the wall and explained to him what was going to happen if he came after my family. And then he, he calmed down, and he was fine after that. Uh, but, uh, my desk sergeant, Steve White at the time, he's like, uh, Hey kid, after you put him in the cell, come and meet me in the upper garage of the old police station. That was his, you know, meeting spot. Cause he was standing out there and smoking all the time. Right. And he's like, look, kid, I know why you did what you did, but you can't do that kind of stuff. You know, I get it. Um, but you can't, you can't, you just can't do it. He's like. First of all, if this would have been during the day and the captain would have been walking down the hall and saw that happen, you'd be in trouble. Secondly, if you do that kind of stuff and, you know, and it gets away from you, you know, you're, you're going to lose your job. Right. You just can't do that kind of stuff. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. We've all been there. Yeah. But the difference is now it's always on video. Yep. And then people who have no, don't understand the stress and, and don't don't have the full picture or the the context of the situation Yeah, are like, well, that guy's an idiot. Like that cop shouldn't have done that. He should have, you know, they have no, and, and they're, sometimes they're right depending on the situation. They're right. But they, there's, there's so much context to those situations. Sure.
0: And you know, the, our profession has evolved uh, through the decades. I mean, if you think about, you know, how policing started in the 1800s. There was no training. There was, you know, a lot of it was political, who you know. Um, You know, Lancaster even had those problems. If you read the history of the department, uh, corruption and, you know, stuff like that. So, and, you know, guys that I worked with who were older on the job, like guys like Tom Weber and and, uh, uh, Gary Metzger and, you know, back in the days when they actually carried blackjacks, um, you know, right? They didn't think twice about hitting somebody with a blackjack when they were resisting arrest. And if you don't know what a blackjack is, it's a piece of lead wrapped in leather with a spring handle. Um, and you know, Gary Metzger told me a couple of times he's like, "I can't believe we never killed anybody with a blackjack because the target was the head."
1: Yeah, you just split their head open. Yeah, yeah, it was cra- I I remember hearing stories about it. I remember, you know, some of the old timers. Like talking about how they used to be able to bounce it off the sidewalk and back up to their hand while
0: they were yeah. on foot patrol and stuff. Like, and even my dad said, you know, he said never hit somebody in the head. That just pisses them off, right? um He said, he told me, you go for the knees. uh You want to take them out at the knees so they can't fight you anymore, you know. And he, you know, his, you know, he carried a. That was when the the uh, metal, you know, what is it, four D cell battery flashlights came out, you know. Uh, aircraft aluminum, so yeah. because that's what they always had in their hand, right? You know, he carried a nightstick, you know, or you know, billy club or whatever you want to call it back then. It was a piece of wood, um, but you know, the flashlights what you had they had in their hand all the time, right? That's why when we went to plastic flashlights, all the older guys were still using them as an impact weapon and breaking the plastic flashlight, right? Because that's that's what they knew,
1: right? So you did, uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you about is, is you referenced, you know, some of the uh, difficulties you had when you were in CID, uh, the criminal investigative division, and you started, you know, just, just having a bad attitude at, at certain points, and you thought some of that was due to uh, PTSD. Have you, I mean, this is a pretty personal question, have you mm-hmm. been diagnosed with that?
0: Um. I- so that's kind of a difficult question because the, uh, so back in 2003, uh, when I went and saw uh, a therapist, cause I was dealing with issues after a, uh, after an arson homicide, uh, where four children were killed in the fire, uh, on East Chestnut street, uh, 500 block of East chest, 500 block of East Chestnut street. Um, they, uh, cause I, I, Processed the crime scene. I went to the autopsy of all four kids. Uh, the youngest girl l- could have been a, a twin to my youngest daughter at the time. Uh, so, you know, just just being around all that uh, was pretty traumatic in what, and of itself.
1: What was the age
0: range of the kids? Uh, four to 13, if I remember correctly. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, uh, got got the call in the middle of the night Um, to respond to it and, you know, helped process the crime scene. I was probably in that crime scene, um, for three days straight, um, just looking for evidence, photographing different things. Um, and then, like I said, I, I volunteered to go to the autopsy because back then I was going to, um, a lot of, I was like the second, um, on a, on crime scenes a lot processing them because that was something I was interested in. I like the forensics part of it. Uh, and up until that uh, fire, I enjoyed going to the autopsies, as odd as that may seem. Um, it, it was just, from an evidence standpoint, it, it was kind of neat. Uh, I thought it was interesting to, to see how the forensics played into it. Um, so I really didn't, at least back then, I didn't think I was having a problem with going to the autopsies I was going to. So I was going to a bunch, uh, natural or uh, unattended death uh, to, and violent death. Um, and, and then 2003, this fire happens. Um, and I'm standing there watching four children, you know, get dissected in an autopsy to determine their, their cause of death. Do you think that
1: was the, the most difficult thing for you or was it at the scene and what you saw at the scene?
0: I think the autopsy ended up being the most difficult. Just Uh, because of the age? Yeah. Just because of the age, like, you know. I mean, it's unnatural for children to die, you know, really. I mean, if you're just a regular person not involved in being a first responder, you know, and even as a first responder, um, anytime I saw, you know, children dying, I mean, that's not, children are supposed to grow into adulthood, you know, right. that's not natural. Uh, And, you know, so I, I noticed about six months after that incident, well I didn't notice my wife noticed she's like something's wrong you're short all the time you're not sleeping um, when you're home you're distant you know all that kind of stuff and were she's you, like you need were to you get having help.
1: nightmares? Uh, yeah yeah
0: just uh, about the autopsy or just about the scene or just
1: about the just whole about thing? just about the whole thing and this this was a this was a homicide this was a mm-hmm. murder
0: yeah this was uh, the ex-boyfriend had still had a key to the house uh, went in uh, used rubbing alcohol to start a fire on the couch. Um, and if, if you don't realize how flammable rubbing alcohol is, it's, I mean, it's, I think it goes up faster than gasoline. Um, because we had, we had the ATF helping us, uh, with it and they actually did burn tests in their lab down in Maryland and we had video of their tests and the, I mean, the couch goes up like crazy. Um, and, and was this couch on the first floor? Yeah, it was on the first floor. And then were all the kids on the, yeah, on the second. second floor front, front and middle bedroom. And mom and her new boyfriend were in the back, uh, and they survived. back of the house and they survived because they tried to get out, uh, the front of their bedroom door, but the heat and the smoke was too bad even at that point because, uh, um, the, basically the stairwell just acted like a chimney for all the heat and the smoke, um, for the, the fire that was in the living room. And, uh, and when the fire department first arrived on scene, I mean, I, I can't give them enough credit, you know, cause I talked to all of them. Uh, we actually did a critical incident debriefing together. Um, and I, I thought, Hey, I took part in that critical incident debriefing. I'm good to go after that. Um, but found out later on that that's just like a bandaid for the time. Um, and because they could still hear the kids screaming, uh, upstairs when they got there. So they, Mom and the boyfriend got out the back of the house from the second floor, and they ran around the front to try and get in the front of the house to go get the kids. When they ran into the guy that started the fire, he basically stood there and watched it burn. Um,
1: was he on scene when the police got there? Oh yeah,
0: they were. They were all fighting out in the street because uh, Sergeant Heiser, I think, was one of the first ones on the on the scene, and he basically hit them all with a, a Mark Nine, the big pepper spray canister and freaking hosed them all with pepper spray all three of them so it was the the new boyfriend and the ex-boyfriend were fighting in the street and she was trying to pull them off and he just sprayed everybody um so we had you know that we had everybody there and but when the fire department first arrived um witnesses said they could still hear the kids screaming um and you know they forced entry the house and uh, they actually went searching on the second floor uh they got separated so they they you know usually firefighters search in in a buddy system and they right. got separated from each other and um you know which you know it it may not be by the book but you know they were trying to save lives and unfortunately all four kids died of smoke inhalation the heat was that it was basically that hot um they had thermal burns uh to their skin and they had you know burns in their esophagus and in their lungs so um, they were just breathing it in and yep yes yeah, just superheated air. Right. So, you know, from a a visual standpoint, they didn't look that bad um, other than, you know, just some redness and, you know, I think one of the girls had some second degree burns to her face, but it wasn't, you know, it just looked like skin peeling. It wasn't anything grotesque. Um, So to sit there and watch, watch those four autopsies was just difficult. And I saw myself withdrawing. Because back then, the uh, the morgue was in the basement of the Conestoga View uh, building. And it was just one room with an office attached to it. And, of course, the refrigeration unit, you know, where they kept the bodies. And as they continue, usually I was always up in the space, you know, collecting evidence, taking things from the body, helping out the— forensic pathologist, whatever, uh, taking photographs, all that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't realize at the time, uh, until the pathologist said something to me, he actually asked me if I was okay. And I said, yeah, I'm I'm fine. But I had withdrew back into the office and I was standing more in the doorway of the office, uh, as he continued the autopsies. Um, and it wasn't, like I said, I think I, I mentioned it, it was about six months after where my wife said something's wrong. You need to get help. So, I went and saw a therapist. Um, I don't know that he ever officially diagnosed me with PTSD, but I mean, those were the symptoms I had. Right. And you know, that at the time it was life management and they're no longer in business. So I don't even know if anybody could find their records anywhere for them anyway. Right. Um, But you know, I believe um, that I um, did suffer from PTSD and it wasn't, I think that was the, that was the, the event that caused the cup to overflow. Right. Hey, I think it was. Can you talk about that a little more? I mean, I know what you mean by that, but. Yeah, it, it was so, you know, as a, as a police officer or first responder, firefighter, you know, EMS, paramedic, uh, doesn't matter. You see a lot of trauma in your career. Um, and it doesn't have to be like bloody, gory trauma. It can just be the trauma of seeing, you know, going to domestic, violence case to domestic violence case. And, and especially with domestics, you never see a worthwhile resolution. You know, what happens oftentimes because of the, the dynamics of domestic violence, uh, the, the spouse doesn't go through with the charges and it's dismissed, right. you know, and you're probably going back to their house again at some point in the near future. Um, but just seeing people at their worst time and time and time again Um, if you don't find a way to get rid of it, your cup just fills up. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, that can deal with it, that, that don't have those issues. Um, I've been described as an empath. Uh, so I, you know, take on other people's feelings and, you know, and because I have this need or want to help people, um, I think that probably makes me a little more prone to it. And, uh, you know, so when, when I went through therapy, I realized, you know, it, it just wasn't the fire that did it. It was all the death I was seeing prior to that. Although my mind didn't recognize it, it was having an effect on me. Um, and even before that, you know, in 2000, uh, when I was on the drug unit, I was in the middle of the shootout in downtown Lancaster with, uh, the Nieta gang, um, and it wasn't until after therapy I recognized shortly after that shootout, I watched the movie Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. It's my favorite movie. Yeah. Um the the last scene in that movie, in that gunfight in the middle of that downtown uh, after they robbed that bank. Um, that's what the downtown shootout sounded like. And I could I'm sitting there watching the movie and I could feel the hair standing up on my my arms and stuff and the back of my neck. Uh, and my pulse increased and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, what I was involved in down there actually had more of a lasting effect on me than what I realized. Uh, cause I ran out during gunfire to tackle Gary Mackley down cause I thought he was going to get shot again. Uh, cause he was standing up in the middle of the street, uh, hopping up and down on one leg. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so going through therapy, I think helped me realize that. And it also taught me Uh, better ways to deal with my stress uh, as I, uh, as I continued on. And throughout some of the other training I had uh, recognized that, you know, it wouldn't be a bad thing to visit a therapist on a more regular basis. Um, You know, we do a lot of uh, wellness physicals, you know, at least, uh, you know, I did as a, uh, as a, a gainfully employed police officer to keep our medical costs down. Right. Right that was part of the thing you had to do. You had to go get a wellness physical, uh, so you could qualify for the lower percentage on your medical contribution, but you know, any first responder should be doing that, uh, from a, a mental health standpoint. Yeah. I, as I got later on in my
1: career, there were, there were guys I talked to, um, you know, that I was a supervisor of or friends with, and I would just encourage them to, cause I didn't, I didn't for years. Right. I never went and talked to anyone and, and it wasn't, you know, my wife really started kind of encouraging me to, to do it. I mean, yeah, she was, she was just kind of like, you need to go talk to somebody. right? And, um, I didn't, I didn't do it till 2019. That's, that's the first time I ever went and talked to anyone. Cause, cause I thought for years, I mean, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing
0: fine. Yeah, we're. Um, th- that's kind of how we, or we look at it as, I don't need help. I'm the yeah. person that provides other people help. Right. You know, and and even even with me, uh, like one of the things I recognized I was, you know, or I didn't recognize I, I was doing. I I became withdrawn. I wasn't working out. I wasn't keeping a, a a regular schedule, and that's the first thing he told me to do. He's like, I know it's going to be difficult, but you got to make yourself. You know, go to the gym. you got to make yourself get back onto a regular schedule. And once I was able to do that, things started to fall in place uh, a lot better. And I recognized that that's something I need to keep doing. And um, also, you know, stop eating garbage all the time. Uh, you know, because it was pretty easy to, we call it the, you know, like the, you know, you're a freshman and in college, the freshman 15. Well, it's usually the CID 20. Um, you know, because you, now you have, you know, on patrol, you barely had time to eat lunch. Um, but as a member of CID or or in uh, the drug unit, you know, you weren't a first responder anymore. So you had time to go eat lunch. And, you know, pizza joints were the, the place to go. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, eating better and all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, and some people it's uh, talking to a pastor rather than talking to a therapist too. You know, some, you know, you got to talk to somebody. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, it really hit home for me more department wide. Like I had some of the training and I was actually teaching, uh, suicide prevention for, uh, our mandatory in-service every year. Um, that one year that they, they kind of highlighted that. And then, uh, after losing, uh, Dave Odenwalt and Todd Russell to suicide, um, you know, the, the numbers are just statistics until it hits home and then it hits you in the face, you know, it's right. like a punch in the face and to have them, uh, die within 30 days of each other. Um, I think it was pretty difficult for our entire department to, to deal with. Uh, and, We started dealing with it, I think, pretty well, but then nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, And then there was animosity, you know, that especially with uh, Odenwalt's death, Mm -hmm. um, related to our administration, you know, and stuff like that. I think it just made things worse, and then everybody stopped talking about it. Like, there was this big push, we gotta do something, Uh, we gotta get better at uh, our EAP program and all this kind of stuff, and then it just kind of fell away. and, uh, even though I was still open about what I dealt with and, um, cause I wanted to break that stigma down, um, and that mental health is important. And then we had, you know, under my watch, Mark Garron, um, mm-hmm. committed suicide. And I was determined that, um, he was going to be the last one while I was in charge, you know, and I started putting other things in place. Um, you know, and I don't know if that, it's still working, I have no idea. I mean we got a better e a p um uh, because one of the things we needed to do and and that's the one thing I gotta say we gotta find uh if I would have thought about this a little bit more instead of going back for my master's degree in uh management and organizational leadership um maybe psychology would have been it uh because there aren't too many psychologists out there that specialize at least in this area, dealing with first responders um and cuz that's one of the things that we we ran into and throughout my career um like Lynn Paxson, she worked with me uh on the drug suppression unit she was involved in an officer involved shooting and she was one of those numbers you know and those numbers are if you don't get the proper help within 5 years of your shooting they they usually leave the job uh worst case scenario they commit suicide themselves um and sure enough uh, within five years of her shooting because she didn't get proper help. She, she did the, you know, the department sends you to a therapist to get checked and all that kind of stuff. And she continued to see, I think she continued to see him one or one or two more times, but you know, she was dealing with a lot, not only in the shooting, but she had a, a fatal accident downtown when she was walking downtown. Uh, an elderly gentleman got run over by a garbage truck. Um, and it was pretty nasty. And, uh, this therapist said to her as she's like, you know, pouring her ha- heart out, um, he actually made the comment, boy, if I would have seen half of what you've seen uh, in your short career, I would have probably ate my gun a long time ago. Um, That's a pretty terrible therapist. Yeah. and that, You know, and I'm like, what does the guy look like? I said, don't tell me. Does he have a ponytail? She's like, yep. And I said, you know, go figure. Um, older guy, gray hair ponytail you know, probably a, a hippie back in the day. Right. Uh just don't understand what we see and what we deal with. Um, which is why, you know, I think it's important for um any public safety agency to try and find uh people that specialize uh in first responders. Um yeah.
1: And I think it is important for for um guys who have gone and gotten the gotten the help they need to be to to talk about it uh, with their yeah. peers or with people that they supervise uh, because yeah it, it's first of all it's difficult to admit. Second of all, if 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 you're respected and you're saying hey, you know, I went and got um some help yeah. and talked to someone about yep. some of these things, uh, you know, maybe you should too. Because you you see the warning signs, you see the things Oh yeah. And and uh in guys lives and and just in and how they are and how they're operating. And even when you talk to them, you can even tell too cuz they'll just let it seep
0: out a little bit. Yep. that they're dealing with stuff. Or they just, you know, you uh you just see them act completely different from what they used to act. Right. You know, there there's something there that has changed that has changed that. Um, their demeanor and and everything, and it's uh, and like you said, I you know I know it's difficult to talk about, but um, if we don't, nothing's ever going to change. Um, and then you know our divorce rate is still going to continue to be higher than the general public, and our suicide rate is still going to be higher than the number of officers killed on the line of duty. Um, if we don't have that real conversation, and right. you know they are teaching it um, now in the academy, um, which is good uh that was a long time coming but you know i still think there there needs to be continued information provided you know that's one of the things i started doing with with new officers was providing them that information you know um ricky mendez bought into it um and uh you know he he started making up packets for for new officers um and it wasn't just you know what we're seeing now too is you know we have young people come to the this job or come to the workforce uh, that really have limited life skills. Um, very, you know, they, they were never taught how to budget, you know, their money.
1: Uh, and a lot of them know how to communicate better by text and social media than person to person. So it becomes difficult Yep, even in that respect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, so, you know, we, we started providing them, you know, these packets of not only talking about mental health and suicide prevention, but also, you know, just budgeting and bills and, you know, your finances and, you know, some other stuff. Um, and, you know, shift work and eating healthy and, you know, it all, it's all related. Um, you know, I can remember when I was in the military, you know, I was given the three B's speech. There are three things that'll get you in trouble in the military. Booze, broads, not, not a good way to say women, but you know, and bills, those are the three things that'll get you, um, in trouble in the military, um, get you, you know, article 15s or, you know, loss in rank and all that kind of stuff or worse kicked out. And, you know, it's the same thing with police work. Those three things can still get you in trouble relationships, um, alcohol and not paying your bills. Um, Right. You know? So
1: it's, I think, I think hitting, uh, Rookies with with that information
0: yeah. uh, on those three things is important. It's just planting that seed, and then you know they're they're going to need reminders because you know we you know you get involved in the job. Um, the other thing too is I think a, a proper work life balance. You know that yeah. that's huge, and you know me as a young cop, I love the job so much. Um, I enjoyed doing it so much. I signed up for overtime left and right. Um, plus you know, um, we had kids and our kids were involved in, especially when they got a little bit older, all kinds of sports and, you know, they wanted to go to these camps and that camp. So, you know, it was expensive. So you worked a lot of overtime. Um, and you know, that when you're burning the candle at both ends, that also makes you more susceptible to post-traumatic stress creeping in.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I read an article recently, uh, comparing, you know, guys in the military to uh, police officers and how the cumulative effect on police officers is um, the chances of them getting post-traumatic stress disorder are almost greater than, than uh, members of the military who have seen combat because members of the military that are seeing combat may see it and then they are pulled out, they're given a break, whereas in law enforcement it, it's just an ongoing just, you know... Yeah grind of, of work, especially yeah. guys or gals who, who stay on the patrol side of things.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, I would say too, um, military is pulled out to a certain extent, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, one of the things that I remember, um uh, when I went to a Colonel Grossman seminar, one of the things he talked about was, um, they really didn't recognize, uh, PTSD or the effects of war back during, you know, the revolutionary or civil war, uh because when it got dark the war the fighting stopped you know they yeah. they hung out around campfires they ate they did whatever um and then you know yeah they fought the next day but there was that lull mm-hmm. um now in combat you know night vision and they fight 24 hours a day 7 days a week right I mean if you think about it that's that's what we end up doing we're we're responding to other people's trauma 24 hours a day 7 days a week right
1: yeah, and I think, it, I think it goes to say, obviously, there have been, you know, the chief and I have been talking this evening. There's people in law enforcement and in the military who have been through far worse things than us um, and, and are okay, uh, which should lend a certain degree of, of hope to uh, anyone who's in, who's in law enforcement oh, yeah. yep. and in the military. So yep. you talked about the, how the job, you know, definitely had an effect on you. Obviously, that effect, you know, went up through the summer of 2020. Uh, you have a, I'll call it a forced retirement. That's what I'll call it. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, during your last, um, your last radio call then, well, I remember during you addressed myself and several other officers in the, in the squad room of the police station, uh, before you made your last radio call and you actually used the word that this job is. A calling, and unbeknownst to you at that point, I was already um I don't think I was telling anyone yet that I was
0: <laughs> well you had your exit strategy in motion
1: <laughs> well i i i I think people knew i was i well, yeah, people would have known by then that I was retiring, but I don't think anyone knew that i was that I was seriously considering launching a podcast, and that part of the name of that podcast was a cops calling, diaanas a cops calling. And so when you when you said that uh, the profession as a calling, it kind of resonated with me because it was something that I was thinking about for the name of the podcast. So what did you mean by that, like a calling?
0: Um. So you really, I mean, I think when you enter this, to first of all, to enter this profession, um, and if you're entering it for the right reasons, uh, to help people, to help a community, um, to um you know, just be a, a good police officer. You're doing it for a reason, and that reason is you're you you've been called to serve for, you know, whether that's um, you know, you take it from a, a religious perspective that, you know, because I've often said, you know, I think police officers are doing God's work. Um and because if we're not doing it, who else is gonna do it? Uh and actually, believe it or not, you know. The mayor said that to me once before. Uh, I don't know if she was in the emotions of the, you know, it was uh, it was a national night out and, you know, it, it was after uh, we lost Mark Garron. So I don't know if that, she was actually better to work for back then because uh, I don't think she had the same political influence that she does now. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I think if, if we're not here to do it, who's going to do it, uh, who else is going to, you know, catch rapists and murderers and, you know, the, that kind of stuff and, and just help people. Um, so that I viewed it, I've always viewed it as a calling for, for some reason, you know, and maybe it was God, you know, sent me on this path. Um, I always felt the need to serve that it was, you know, it called to me, you know, first as a a volunteer firefighter and then the military and, you know, and I think it had to do with, uh, the influence that I had in my life. Um, that, that kind of also helped pave the way, but you know, there, there seemed to be satisfaction in it. Um, and like you were doing something for the greater good. And, uh, that, that's kind of what I meant by it. And it's, it's kind of hard to put a description to it. I think, um, you either feel it or you don't. Um, and I think, if you're one of those cops that doesn't really feel it, you can pick them out. Um, and they're they're there. Yeah, they're there. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be you know, let's be honest. There there are people that came to this job. They saw it as, you know, whether the economy's good or bad, it's a pretty stable job. So they got a salary, um, health benefits, and a pension when it's all said and done. And that was their primary reason for for doing it. Um, and you know, a lot of times that you see them do the bare minimum to get by. Right. Because uh, you, you can be a a pretty middle-of-the-road cop and, you know, walk out unscathed after 20 or 25 years.
1: Right, so, and just answer your calls and yeah. do nothing else. Yeah,
0: don't, don't rock the boat and, you know, don't stick your neck out for anything or anybody. Um, you know, you're not in it because you had a calling to do it. Um, it's, it's the officers that you see that are out there, you know, essentially busting their ass to, to do the work. Right. And I think that's why 2020
1: had such a really, um, difficult effect on a, on a lot of, a lot of guys because they were, that calling was being challenged. Oh yeah. And then
0: over 99% of the cops, and I'll go with that number that high are doing this because they want to help people. You know, yeah, we do have bad cops out there and we try and weed them out the best we can. Um, and you know, quite honestly, you know, we talked about the mental health aspect of it. You know, some of them don't turn bad until they've been on for a while and they make mistakes that turn them into bad cops. Um, and you know, it, it really says something when you have 800 to 900,000 police officers. I, I like to be a little more conservative with that number because there's probably eight hundred thousand or less that actually wear the uniform and do the work on the street on a daily basis so if we're just talking about those officers and you compare the number of people that uh, or the number of bad cops that wear the uniform to all those numbers, it's minimal um, and the number of bad things that have happened related to that is very small Um, you know even the Washington Post I mean they 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 track the numbers uh, on an annual basis of the number of people that are killed by law enforcement Uh, and when you compare that to the number of contacts that we have on an annual basis with the public and the number of arrests that are made nationwide um, that number is minimal and yet mistakes are made sometimes you know Um, but we're dealing with human beings right you know, we, we wear a badge, but we're not a robot. We're not, you know, we are a human being and we're, we can make mistakes. Um, You know, and, you know, some of that is, you know, we do have, unfortunately, you do have police departments out there that aren't doing the best that they can do to train their people. But when you look at, again, you know, I talked about it being a perfect storm. You know, when you look at large cities that have 6,000 cops like Philadelphia or 34,000 like New York city. How are they getting all those officers trained the same way? Right. You know, I challenge anybody to explain to me how that, that it's a monumental task. So it's probably not happening. So how are they all getting the same exact training um, on the same exact thing? Every year, or you know, whatever, and and
1: that's why I think you know um, that vetting process uh, during the background investigations is important when you're hiring guys yep. and gals, and also you touched on this before that first line supervision that sergeant level um, is so important, and also I would say I always told uh, the field training officers in on my platoon when I was a when I was a patrol sergeant that they held probably the most important job in the police department to yep. train the officers that were coming on with them. Um, it becomes so important. And that's why every level of supervision needs to take that so seriously. And right. and I would I would tell you know officers who wanted to take that supervisors uh, test, listen, half the battle was caring. If you care about your people mm-hmm. and you care about the job. That's half the battle. You have to yeah. train people. You have to coach people. You're gonna have to discipline people sometimes. Your career leading up to that moment when you get promoted is so in, so important. Yeah.
0: Um. You know. And I mean, you know, you look at, you know, when I left, I I held the position of chief of police. So I left abruptly, and guess what? The police department's still running. Right. You know. So. Although a chief of police position is important, it's certainly not as important as that field training officer or that first line supervisor, that sergeant. Um, if you lost all your sergeants in a police department, the patrol division would be in chaos. You know, you'd probably have some, you know, natural or you know, you'd have guys step up. You'd have guys step up that, that would you know fill that leadership role, but um, you know, it would be far more detrimental. If, uh, if you didn't have those first line supervisors, good first line supervisors, right. You know, you and I probably saw that throughout our careers, um, good supervisors versus, and you know, and that's, that's, I, I took lessons from that, not only the good ones that I had, but also the not so good ones that I had to make sure I didn't make those same mistakes. Um, you know, I, I took it all as a, as a learning opportunity and, you know, kind of like, uh. I think how, you know, you, you approach parenting too. Um, You know, you learn from your parents and you learn what you don't want to do and what you want to do as parents. I think. Uh,
1: I always, I've always said being a supervisor, uh, you know, whatever rank you are in a police department is like being a parent. Mm -hmm. You care about your people. When you discipline them, you're not disciplining them to, you know demoralize them demoralize them or, yeah. them or but but to train them yep. to go in a different direction that's yep. that's you're trying to correct behavior um and always try to catch them catch your people doing something right you're going to hear about the bad stuff you don't yeah. need to go looking for it but oh, try yeah. to catch them doing something right yeah. and um, that's
0: why that's why when i you know when we got that software um i think i was a patrol captain when we first got it and then as chief um the uh blue team software to track you know use of force and the the knocks and the boosts and all that kind of stuff and um i finally said you know they they didn't include me in the the chain um when guys were getting attaboys you know and i'm like you you gotta add me you you gotta you know balance out you know the good and the bad. Like, <laughs> so you're not uh, just seeing the yeah, bad, yeah. So I'm not just the seeing the or hearing the bad stuff. Right. You know, I want to see, and you know, there's there's a lot more good than bad, absolutely. Um, which is you know what we want, and it's why you know I to this day I'll say we have I think one of the most professional uh, police departments, uh, not only in Lancaster County but in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, with what we deal with and how we deal with it. Um, you know, we've been doing more with less now for the last. Probably going on twenty years now, um, right, and the officers do a a great job
1: yeah and and what kills me about that is that when you look at the way Lancaster City is right now, a lot of the um, safety that you have downtown, a lot of the restaurants and the bars mm-hmm. and the coffee shops that have opened um, and the stores that've opened have come in because of the work of the police department, not, right. not just because of the police right. department,
0: but, but you can't officers, have, you can't have ac- economic stability and you can't have economic growth, um, without, without safety, without safety. Right. Cause nobody, and I remember that, you know, back in the nineties, um, when downtown stores were, were drying up, um, you know, there was hardly any activity downtown. And when, you know, I would go out places with my wife and, you know, with her friends and, um and other like cops girlfriends and stuff like that. they're like oh we're never going into the city right. cuz it's so dangerous it's you know cuz all they see is what what they see on you know WGAL or Fox 43 or uh in LNP in the newspaper um or back then it was the Lancaster New Era and the Intelligence Journal right you know that's that's all they had to go on and they're seeing shooting here shooting there shooting here shooting there um i mean you know so yeah, you can't, you can't have economic growth or economic stability without safety. Right, it's impossible. Yeah,
1: and I think I think you know it's a testament to the police department in Lancaster City, and it's also a, I think a challenge to our politicians. You you want reform, you want change. You can't have that if you reduce our numbers because there's no way yeah. it keeps on ticking. You need right. people on the street doing the job.
0: Well, yeah, and, and let's let's just use. Uh, the operation that you guys did in Ben's Park is an example, right? Um we were hands off uh for Ben's Park uh, right in the middle of downtown Lancaster in the 100 block of North Queen Street uh because we were under pressure um from uh other groups um and uh about dealing with the homeless situation. Right. So You know, we we started trying to deal with it um, in one aspect and we we got kind of raked over the coals on, you know, uh, we're we're so bad to the homeless and we're, you know, taking away their stuff and, you know, locking them in jail. And and none of that was true. Um, You know, we were arresting some of them, but, you know, most of them we were trying to move on or trying to get them in to housing, whether it be a shelter or something else. Um, So... I made the decision, okay, we're gonna back off. We're gonna back off because you know, we're taking heat politically and from all these uh, groups that wanna help the homeless. And uh, none of them were real uh, organized. It was just people showing up down there, giving away food, thinking that was the solution. And blankets. And what ended up happening is it became an absolute den of drug activity. Um, to where it you know the pandemic made it worse, um, especially once they put porta johns and uh, needle boxes down there, uh, needle disposal boxes, and uh, you know it got to the point where nobody wanted to enter Ben's Park, which was supposed to be you know kind of like a sort of a jewel of the downtown area, right? Park. So, Park would be a right a main part of that yeah. title. Yeah. I mean it was a place that, you know, in the summertime people took their kids and they hung out and
1: Right. There's a fountain down there and
0: Yeah, a fountain and seating and all that stuff. And uh, you know, it just turned into this mess. Um, to where you had, you know, Port-a-John's overflowing, you had, you know, people using the, you know, doorways as their bathrooms and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. And then we had, you know, people were overdosing on K2 I don't like calling it overdose it's just a reaction to the K2 right. um and then you know some overdoses on fentanyl or heroin but um and then you know we it got bad enough to where now the politicians agreed to do something you know they wanted to try you know different measures and you know this group do this and this group do that and it just you know we were dealing with what they didn't understand and what we you know I tried to tell them time and time again is we weren't dealing with just homeless people down there. We were dealing with people who were preying on the homeless because that's where they were getting their money, you know, mm-hmm. cause they were selling them drugs. They were also there for the free food that was being dropped off and everything else. Um, so the criminal element was not the homeless people. Um, and that's what we needed to root out. Now, some of them were homeless, but right. Um, but the vast majority of them were not right. And uh, you know, and you know, Selective enforcement moved in and cleaned it up pretty good. Now, my understanding is it's kind of gone back to the, what it was
1: yeah, it has it's become a hot potato issue too, from yeah. what I understand but um yeah it it was one of those things
0: where you know but nobody wanted to go near it. you know it's right there at a county building nobody you know county employees complained about it, county commissioners complained about it. you know there's a bank right there, the bank employees didn't feel safe we at one point we we were we were
1: doing uh drug operations we were we were engaged in some drug operations within there on a very low key way because right. we knew of how political it was um and uh at one point uh, some of my guys had gone in there in uniform on one shift uh, when I was actually off to just id a dealer right and um i got a call at home <laughs> cuz someone saw it Yep. And I went through City Hall and then it went to the uh lieutenant, the patrol lieutenant who was working that night, and I get a call at home. Yep. And I was furious. I'm like, So you're telling me because my guys went into an idea drug dealer in Binns Park and, and the way it was reported that uh my guys had gone into the park and kicked were kicking homeless people out of the park. Right and um well, that, so that, that, that was the that was the final straw for me too i said guess what we're done yeah. we're not doing anything in there and then like you said it got bad enough and then we decided to do something and you know we do basically 3 hours of work in there and arrest like 19 felons so
0: right it yeah it's a uh, you know that that was always the knee jerk reaction anytime they saw a police presence in bens park it was we were kicking the homeless out right um which you know, was the furthest from the truth.
1: And this kind of takes us all the way back to kind of like our beginning of our conversation that, you know, one of my fears about law enforcement in this country in this country right now is, are we going to be used because we're a part of the government? Are we going to be used? Are you concerned that we're going to be used to start pushing certain agendas instead of just enforcing the law as, as we should be?
0: Yeah, I would, uh, I'd be concerned, depending on the the community that you're working in, that that would be an issue. Yeah. You know, because, you know, if you think about it, you know, one of the reasons that I always said that uh, people come after us, police officers first, is, you know, when you think about it, we're the only part of government that people can reach out and touch 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's why I become we become I think the easiest punching bag cuz we are the most visible piece of local government. Um, you know it it made me kind of wish you know boy I wish I was a you know a firefighter. Like I wish I would have checked that box dude, on the application. Loves firefighters. I know that's I I always mess with uh you know chief little uh, the city's fire chief with that, you know, cuz he he talk about community engagement this, community engagement that and I'm like, dude, what do you need to worry about community engagement for? Everybody loves firefighters. Right. You know, it, you can let somebody's house burn down. As long as you're squirting water on it, you know, people still love you. Right. Um, even if their house burns. But, you know, just joking with them. You know, they they have a hard job and they do their thing. But, um, you know, it, it's just we are – and it seems like every, every ill in life funnels to the police department. So, you know, um, poverty – you know, if you look at in, in any, really in any jurisdiction where a police officers are spending a lot of their time, it's usually in the poorest sections of the, of their jurisdiction, whether it's a city, a township or a county, doesn't matter. Um, cause that's where, where crime lives. Um, right. because people are taking advantage, criminals are taking advantage of the poor just, just like, you know, other people may. Um, so, you know, we spend a lot of our time and, So lack of employment, lack of services, lack of, uh, you know, mental health services. Cause you know, we are, we're essentially the bandaid for the mental health community. Um, you know, our, our mental health services has declined rapidly. It's a big problem. Nobody knows how to solve it because, you know, just throwing money at it's not going to work. Um, you know, there's, there's gotta be a different way and nobody's really, so it all falls in our lap, you know, it all goes down this funnel and we're at the end of that funnel. It's who people call. Yeah. It's, it's who people call, you know, cause they have nobody else to call it at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and, and we're it. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, not nobody wants to the defund the police movement or those activists don't want to acknowledge the number of times we deescalate situations. You know, we, de- you know, in, in my career, I've talked a lot more people into handcuffs than I had to force into handcuffs. And that, that goes for every police officer. I right. mean, so,
1: um. Especially as you get older, you just get tired of fighting with people.
0: Yeah. Because you, you learn, you learn how to talk people. Yeah. Well, you get hurt too. I right. Mean, you know. As you get older, you know, the skin in your knees and, you know, impacting joints on, on concrete or asphalt just doesn't feel as good. And you, you're not re you're not recovering from it, you know, as quick as you used to. Right. Uh, and you just find out that there's smarter ways to do it. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I think one of my biggest concerns right now is, uh, you know, you saw what happened, uh, through the summer of 2020 with, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and all these other social justice movements jumping on that. Um, and then you see what happened at the Capitol. Um, and people want to, you know, pick sides. Right. And, and my side is, as law enforcement, we have to say, you know, what happened during the summer or what happened not even just during the summer in 2020 throughout 2020 yeah. with the riots and the protests that we saw and, and some what happened of it's still at the, happening now it's still happening mm-hmm. now and what what happened at the capitol both are wrong, both are evil, both are sinful, both should be dealt with accordingly by law enforcement yep but it seems like one side it's yeah. okay for the police to deal with it, and the right. other side it's not and and uh I just that's that's what I have a problem with.
0: Yeah, it is problematic and it's it, and it's a glaring hypocrisy that nobody wants to, you know, you, you don't get any acknowledgement uh from mainstream media um about it. Uh the only ones talking about it are uh probably other conservatives and the law enforcement community. Um and and people who are in those in those positions. They're like, "Well, you know, especially in places where you know, they've, they've locked up, they've arrested these protesters or rioters, let's call it for what they are. Right. Um, as soon as they start destroying property, uh, lighting things on fire and fighting the police, they're, they're a rioter. They're not a, a protester. So, um, you know, Philadelphia arrested a number of them, uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, I, I don't know how, you know, my hats, my hats off to them. Like, I, I don't know how they go to work every they, day. Yeah. They go to work every day. Like, you know, one of, you know, we, I know one of the guys, you know, out there, um, cause he used to, uh, work in Lancaster County. Um, and he was on the, uh, cert team. He moved out, out to Portland. Um, you know, and I know other guys that have talked to him and he said, it's, it's been absolutely insane. Uh, you know, he worked, I think one time they talked to him, he worked like 70 days straight. Um, you know, uh, exactly. How do they get up every day and go and go to work? Yeah, I don't Um, don't know, you know, and, uh, and not worry about risking losing their life or a, you know, activist DA or, you know, something, you know, throwing them under the bus for something they did. But you look at, you know, Philadelphia arrested a number of people, Portland, Oregon arrested a number of people and, you know, so on and so forth in Seattle, Minneapolis, New York City, and they let them all out of jail. Right. Well, and, and, that, and you even had you even
1: had some uh political entities, political mm-hmm. um people Yeah, donating to bail funds. And, and we had that, that here in Lancaster. Yeah. We had we had we had some of our yep. local protest groups um yep. bailing yep. people out. Yep. Um or, and, or trying to raise money to bail people out.
0: And it's bad enough you bail them out, but you know, some of these places completely dropped all the charges against them. Right. You know. I'm sorry, but you you kind of have to hold people accountable for their behavior. You know, it's because of politics,
1: and and it. Yep. Oh man, yeah, it's disgusting to me because I mean, I mean, to a law enforcement agency is there to enforce the law. It doesn't matter how the person looks, how they dress, what their ethnicity is, what their race is. It doesn't matter. They're there to enforce the law, and yep. and when you start. Make turning the law into a political theater, right, man, that's just a dangerous road to go down,
0: yeah, and, and you know a lot of people assume you know and I ran into this throughout my career, a lot of people assume because I grew up in a, a small town of like twenty five hundred people uh, went to a smaller high school um that you know I was never exposed to uh African American people or Hispanic people or whatever, um which wasn't true, and then right. Uh, you know, and then I go into the military and there's probably not a more diverse employer in the United States than, than the military. Um, and so, you know, and I was, I was always taught growing up, um, you don't hate people. Uh, my parents were pretty strong with that because hatred is a strong word, hate. And, you know, you can hate your green beans on the plate. Uh, you can hate inanimate objects but you can't use that word when you're talking about other people so i was never taught hate towards other people um and and that's the way i approach my career um you know i was given the advice a long time ago when i first started imagine that you know every person you come in contact with that you're taking a report from is your grandmother or you know a member of your family and how would you want them treated by the police um so yeah it's uh it's a narrative that, you know, we talk about um, a lot and it's like nauseating that we talk about it so much. That a vast majority of us do not see the color of a person's skin when we're dealing with them. It's, you broke the law or you didn't, or, you know, it's, that's, that's it. It's
1: contact content of character
0: right. type stuff. yeah, exactly. You know, and. Yeah, I don't, I didn't base any of my decisions on, on, you know, and I did this, you know, when I worked as a, a loss prevention uh, detective for Boscov's. I didn't key in on somebody on camera because of the way they looked. It was their actions that made me key in on them on camera. Because uh, there's no way you're going to catch everybody. Right. Um, so.
1: Yeah. It's interesting times, that's for sure. Yeah. That, it, that we're in.
0: It's uh, it's, uh, It's a little scary, you know. Yeah
1: uh it it is and i i think um
0: i think uh, i think now I, you know it used to be i think they asked this question back during ferguson uh like how many how many current police officers would want their children to become police officers and you know there were there was a significant percentage back then during the riots in ferguson that would not um want their kids to become cops and i bet that percentage is through the roof now um, you know,
1: and i I'd be one of those, you know, yeah. it's, it's really tough. I mean, having a young son, um, you know, that, that topic has come up with my wife and, um, I don't know. I think I'd be, I think I'd be crazy proud. Yeah. But so I, would I. I think I, I would
0: really, or I'd have, have a really, uh, Heart I might, to heart. Yeah, I, I might try and steer them into another type of law enforcement. Right. You know, um, I mean, you know, I look at the state police now. Uh, to me, you know, they haven't had to answer to, to any of this that's been going on. Right. You know, and, and you know, of course, you know, the the FBI would be, you know, going federally would be an, another option too. Um, but, uh because, you know, my youngest daughter, you know, she said she, she to this day, she'd still like to become a police officer. She knows that mom would probably kill her. Um, but she's, uh, you know, she just feels that she, she wants to be uh, part of, I don't want to say the change, but just be part of this, um, the good side of law enforcement. Right. Because she knows it's there. Because she yeah. saw you know, me do it for 26 years.
1: But herein lies the problem then too, because you have people who are encouraging their kids, you have good officers who are encouraging their kids not to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just the, the political narrative and everything sure. is not lending to anyone who, who feels a calling, you know, they're, they're taking that calling somewhere else. So it opens the doors. Yep. The thing that kills me is, the progressive narrative that is being pushed is actually going to do the exact opposite because people your good high caliber character moral people are not going to want to do the job no. and it's going to open the doors to lower standards yep. to in order to get bodies because you're going to need people to do yep. it and so you're going to open the doors and lower standards and bring people in who maybe don't have the moral fortitude to do a good job at it yep. or to do it correctly And it's going to be a kind of like a... a, What they're trying to prevent is actually probably going to get worse before it gets better, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, it's... uh, We're going to run into the same problem. You know, unfortunately, history is cyclical. Mm -hmm. Especially if you don't recognize your history. Uh, You're bound to repeat it. uh, The good and the bad. And, you know, you saw a number of police departments that lowered their standards, um, back in the eighties, uh, and, uh, part of the nineties, and they ended up paying for it. Um, you saw a lot of cops getting arrested, uh, especially in cities like Baltimore and, you know, Philadelphia, New York city. Um, you know, New York city had a huge problem with corruption, you know, back in the seventies, uh, and early eighties. So, you know that that's exactly what's going to happen. Basically, what you're you, these larger departments are not going to get any better because nobody's going to want to work for them uh, because of the politics involved.
1: Well, and, and these politicians are just turning them into cesspools. Right, the cities themselves. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then and then you're going to have um, basically what you're going to do is you're going to lower your standards to the point where because all you need is a warm body in a uniform, and that's going to come back to bite them in the ass. Yeah. It's going to be highly problematic right um, and you know and that's the unfortunate problem and yeah. it's and it's it's because these politicians don't understand their history you know you look at these politicians, you know a lot of them especially on that level, they're in office for maybe four or eight years, and they're moving on to either a higher political office or you know they've made connections and now they got a pretty decent six-figure salary in this business or corporation or whatever um and they don't take the time to look at how they got where they got to
1: right yeah well i don't know uh do we have an upper to close close us down (laughs) with like some i mean the good thing is there are like the chief was saying earlier like you were saying earlier there are over ninety nine percent of the officers in this country are doing an amazing job. If you if you want it, you probably already have, but there are some amazing articles coming out of um what the Capitol police did uh when when they tried to take over the US Capitol, um some of the officers in there and some of the stuff they were were doing and some of the news that mm-hmm. the news stories that are coming out of that um is incredible uh because it, it pretty much sounds like a lot of their high ranking brass just abandoned them yeah it was and they
0: were on their own from you know being able to view it from the outside looking in that's that's the first thing i thought of right away is there was a breakdown in communication right they weren't properly prepared for the day um you know it again it was a a perfect you know you had all these pieces that fell into place to make it an absolute you know, nightmare. Um, and, you know, how how you can have over a million people, you know, some of the numbers are, you know, I've heard one and a half to three million people were there and not prepare for about 10 to 15% of that crowd to act like idiots. Um, I, I don't know how you can act, how you can right. not prepare for that. And then to leave it now on the frontline guy, um, like some of those guys, you know, from some of the footage I've seen, they just opened the doors and said, you know, whatever like they're probably like I ain't getting paid enough to, you know, stand in the way of this nonsense. Right. Um but then other ones, you know, uh really put up the fight. Yeah. Uh, and tried to, you know.
1: And those are again, those are probably the ones the, between the ones that are called yeah. and the ones that are just hey, I'm yeah, collecting, a, collecting paycheck. a paycheck. Yeah. Right.
0: So, you know, and it's just I know I know things look bleak right now. Um but you know, all I can say is, you know, to end on a high note if you pick up that phone and call 911 they're coming right you know they're coming yeah
1: um, absolutely
0: because when it comes down to it you know i i kind of like i can't remember who said it uh it doesn't matter what's happening in the white house it doesn't matter what's happening in the state house it's what's happening in our house you know in our house meaning you know our police station mm-hmm. so you know that that's where yeah. What's going on in national government eventually trickles down to state and local government, but you know, it usually takes a while to get there. And what impact does it really have? Um, usually minimal. Right. You know? And I would also
1: add like, just, just uh, uh, even more hope to, to what you said is, is that, and you brought in your, your faith um, into, into how that's helped you throughout your career and yeah. everything. Um is the fact that, you know, we, ha- we have an example in, in Jesus himself who stood in the gap between us and God's wrath. You know, we, we've all, we're all sinners and we all deserve God's wrath, and Jesus stood in the gap for that. And so that's kind of, you know, obviously not to that degree, but that's kind of what the police do. We stand yep. in the gap between the, the lawbreakers um, and those who keep the law, and and there are men and women even now as we're talking that are are doing that that job and doing it um, to the best of their ability and yep. in excellent ways. Um, and and, that,
0: and that's why you know in my last radio call I used that quote. Um, yeah, you know the wicked flee when no man pursueth, and the righteous serves bold as a lion. And that that's exactly what to me what it means. You know, and you know I took that. You know, it's part of the law enforcement uh, memorial down in Washington D.C. And you know, it's it's so true. It's so true. It's true. Um, you know, the police stand in that gap as bold as a lion um, uh, to protect the innocent from from evil. Um, and you know, regardless of what's going on, I still and you know, like I said, y- you may have like my daughter. You know people who want to do this job the right way and they're seeing it as a calling and they're still they're still gonna come. You know, like when when we held our last uh county consortium test, um, you know, we had better numbers than we had the, the two years prior to that. Um it's incredible. And to me, with everything that was going on uh from uh May on with all the protests and everything, I, I was surprised that we had those numbers. Um, absolutely astonished that we had those numbers. Um, and then we looked at, you know, the, we had, a this was probably the, um, most diversity we've ever had, um, in, in numbers, um, which, you know, again, is, is good. You know, we want a police department to reflect the community that they serve. Um, the number of women that came out was unreal. Um, so, you know, I think the the profession's moving in the right direction, however, like we said in some of these cities it's it's a little problematic, yeah, you know, and it's not you know so elections happen, you know, I would think if these cities get that bad, they'll elect that bad politician out of office, and you know maybe that's when the changes occur, right, who knows yeah
1: we hope so. thanks so much for Absolutely. coming on, yeah, I, I really appreciate this. it. Um, you know, it was an honor to have you here, uh, you know, because you were my, my chief at the end of my, uh, career. And, uh, I always appreciated, I always knew you cared about your people. And, uh, that was, that was one thing I always appreciated about you. And, and, um, you know, like I said earlier, one thing I always tried to pass on to, um, you know, my peers and, and people who were looking to get promoted like if you care about your people, that's, that's half the battle. Yep. So I appreciate that. If you'd like to support the podcast, please give us five stars and even uh, write us a review wherever you listen to your podcast and then share us with the friends and family. Diakonasa Cops Calling is also on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter at mtonyw. If you're in law enforcement, thanks so much. I appreciate you. The chief appreciates you. Kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreakers. If you're just listening and trying to understand law enforcement, Police Work. It's an honor to have you listen in on these conversations and I wish you Godspeed.